four of us over a beer, shit or bust conversation. Um, and that's when it went from something that was pointed to saying, right, let's build a hundred million dollar business, right? Let's build something that is a multi-generational business here. We have now done our market research through our time in market. We see the opportunity. It was, to us, it was brazenly clear how big the opportunity was, but nobody else could quite see it, right? Todd Welling is the co-founder of Overdose, a full-suite digital commerce agency with offices all over the globe, 450-plus staff. And in this episode, we talk about why being different is better than better, why working around the edges can help build a brand, how they develop the brand from zero to 500 staff, the mental struggles of entrepreneurship, the responsibility of being a people-first organization, why it's so important just to be good at one thing. If you're going to be good at something, be really, really, really good at one thing. This episode is absolutely ram-packed full of value. Todd has shared so much inspiration and so much knowledge. It's just one of the best ones we've done. So turn up the volume, get comfortable, go for a walk, go for a run, go to the gym, whatever you do when you listen to a podcast, this one is going to add so much value. Kia ora, how are you? I'm good, Craig. Appreciate having me on the show, buddy. It's always, always a pleasure. Hey, I am. I like cracking straight into the questions, and I'm going to ask this one because I ask this just so I have some sort of consistency. And I always ask this very same question: What was the first ever paid job you got? And I'm talking pocket money with your parents, or doing the pamphlet run, or whatever that might have been. So I reckon the first paid job I had was my dad was what. Uh, growing up in the southeast of London was a scrap electrician. Mm. So he used to go and clear out big warehouses. Um, and then we had to go back to his yard and break down all, all that machinery and take out all the nuts and bolts, pull it, polish them all up and put them into containers. And I think you got like about 50 pence a pot that, that you managed to clean out for dad and then help mm. him go, go to all of his, uh, his radio rallies and trade shows and that kind of stuff. So I think that was the first thing I ever got paid to do. So you weren't brought up in New Zealand? Where'd you go to school? No, I'm I'm a Londoner, buddy. So I grew up in uh, the the grungier parts of southeast London. So uh, Deptford, Lewisham, Greenwich kind of areas. Um, and then my parents moved us down to Kent. So I grew up down sort of uh, southeast London, north of Kent. Um, and uh, yeah, just went to a variety of schools around there, buddy. Mm. So what football team do you support? Well, I'm a, a diehard, tragic Charlton Athletic fan, which used to be a bit of a good side to follow um, before I mo moved out to the other side of the world. But I think we're uh, back down in the second or third division now. Mm. My father-in-law is a scouser, and he is a diehard Everton fan, like diehard. And he was oh. very, 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 very pleased that they didn't get relegated um, over the weekend. Um, yeah, that, that, that was a good last day of the season. They stayed up. Yeah, they stayed up. Hey, I thought we'll crack straight into um, some of the questions that we've got there. So for those listeners out there who are um, potentially coming to Smeeny Growth in Wellington, Todd's going to be one of our speakers. So listen in to this podcast and we'll talk about what he's actually going to speak about further on down the podcast. But the other question I want to ask you is, can you recall the first brand that had a positive influence on your life? I can remember, and again, this is back in, in the UK, and I'm showing my age a bit here, Craig. Um, I remember when, when you first kind of discovered fashion and there was a brand that it's almost died, but it's come back to life. And we're actually, fortunately, we, we, we look after their Australian business now. 
Do you remember the little surf brand, Aussie surf brand, Mambo? Oh, had yeah. Like the the oh, little yeah. fart whistling dog. Yeah, yeah. I remember walking into a local surf store and thinking, that's the shit, right? And I remember buying these ridiculously loud, almost like a checked pajama pants with all my pocket money. <laughs> That I'd, that I'd saved up and I think that was the the first ever brand when you know when I think back to it that I firmly recall having a oh my god fashion's kind of cool I'm kind of into this stuff right um not quite um you know they're, they're actually having a really incredible revival now with some of their loud and proud stuff so um yeah I think that was probably the first one the other brand I, I remember intimately as a kid was Commodore you know, this was mm-hmm. sort of like um, when you got that first game console and you had the little gun on it, um, kind of pre-Nintendo, pre-PlayStation, um, where all your games were on a little uh, reel-to-reel cassette. And I remember having one of those uh, um, uh, Commodore ZX Spectrums um, and uh, just shooting at pixels on the screen. And I guess <laughs> I somehow ended up in tech off, off the back of that stuff. I remember one of my friends had a Commodore 64 back in the day. Um, mm. This would have been like the late 80s, and that was rad. We had Street Fighter 2 on it. It was, it was pretty cool. Spent a lot of time in his house. Um, yeah, I remember the, the, the coolest thing you could get was the one that had the rubberized keyboard, right, <laughs> where, where, where the, the little buttons were all kind of pre-rubber, and it's all pre-Apple stuff. But um, I just love those little tech gadgets, and there was a mid-40-year-old um, – you still get pumped when you see new stuff like you know Apple releasing their new headset today. It's like, right, how do I get my hands on one of those just to play with the stuff? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Okay, so we know we are um, in the um, Apple or Android space. Grew up over in the UK. Can you give us a bit of your origin story to, um, and then how you ended up founding, being one of the founders of Overdose, and and then what Overdose is. Yeah, um, long story. So I had the opportunity uh, coming out of school to go and um, study, you know, real high-end, highbrow kind of Oxbridge stuff. Um, And at the very last minute, I bailed away from that and uh, decided instead of doing economics and management, I'll go and study product design for, Mm. I'm still not quite sure why. Um, But I had a kind of a, a, you know, I was a bit of a geeky, nerdy kid, but had a creative kind of lens on me. Um, did four years at uni, um, uh, got picked up coming out of uni of one of those um, big American banks. So um, it, was, it was when Morgan Stanley was kind of kicking around. And this was sort of 96, 98, somewhere around, around about there, where you hadn't even really learned to program, to be honest. You've been taught a bit of Perl and that, that kind of stuff. And they had one of those things where like a thousand people turn up and then they take like five people from that kind of um, recruitment phase. And and they were going through an interesting time of where they were deliberately recruiting non-tech grads. Um, So Mm -hmm. they picked up, you know, half a dozen of us that were musicians and designers and all this kind of stuff. Um, And that's how I ended up going into programming. So I was writing um, like derivatives trading systems and clearing systems. Um, That job took me out to New York for a while. Um, came back to the London, did a bit of our private wealth management stuff, traveled the world, um, ended up living in Singapore. Um, mm-hmm. And then from Singapore, uh, chose to move out to New Zealand where we had you know, kids and, and family. And we've been out here now for 15, 16 years. Um, and we, um, I've got four kids here. And yeah, this is home now. 
Mm. And I guess off the back of that, we um, when we first came to the country, we really struggled to find work. Um, we were overqualified for what we were doing. You know, I, I was sort of 26, 27 years old and running, you know, big teams of 50 to 100 tech guys across investment banks. And you come to little old New Zealand and that market doesn't even exist here. So I became a accidental entrepreneur where we'd set our hearts on moving to New Zealand and we actually bought a restaurant off trade me. Um, mm. And we'd literally gone through this process of we don't care what business we buy. Let's just buy something that's got some good channels and we'll turn it around um, and we'll, we'll work our way through it. So I ended up working in hospitality for, God, six, seven, eight years, maybe longer, um, starting multiple restaurants and businesses and gift stores and pizzerias and stuff like that. Um, kind of found that that sort of capped out in terms of what I could personally achieve th through them because, um, you know, just the the scale and opportunity wasn't there. And I wanted to get back back to tech. It's where I felt my calling sat. And this was at the eve of e-commerce really starting to become a thing. So talking probably 2012, 13, 14. Um, and one winter I sat down and just taught myself to code again because I hadn't been coding for like, you know, six, seven years. Um, read the entire source code of a e-commerce e platform and started spinning up some stores, playing around, and then kind of became an accidental consultant through there of where you were helping other people out, so on and so forth. Had a little um, kind of um, consultancy um, uh, with, with, with a guy. I'm in a line. We did that for um, three or four years. Realized that our ambition levels were just a bit kind of different in terms of what we, we, we wanted from, from life and what we wanted from the business. So I then struck out on my own and started Overdose. Um, I started that with Ryan Delaney. So Ryan came on board um, as our, our chief experience officer. So looks after everything, design, creative, brand experience. Um, and I basically headed up everything that was sort of strategy, sales, technology. And then we just started bringing guys on, on board to join us. So Nikolai, our CTO, joined pretty quickly after that. He was a, you know, came from a client we've been working with, an incredible Kiwi fashion brand called I Love Ugly, which I'm sure many of you know. So we've been looking after those guys and he jumped over to agency side. Then Paul jumped on board as our, what he was then, our chief operating officer, he's now our, our, our CEO. He came from big agency land and basically taught us all the things we needed to know um, around uh, structure um, and building large teams. And we basically built this incredible kinship of um, joint founders that came together over around about two years that had a balance between entrepreneurial aggression, strategy, operations, technology, experience. And then we started to blossom out from there, um, started growing internationally, and then started adding more service sets in. So started bringing in data and search and, um, and marketing in, in, into our mix. And now we sit as a group of around about uh, 400 to 500 staff glo globally. Um, very interesting operating structure where we have 24, I think, at the last count, people on our cap table. So we have a, a real strong mentality towards a shared success result. Um, and basically cutting people in through that process, locking down that great talent. Um, and yeah, that's where, where, where we are now. So we've kind of gone from nothing, completely bootstrapped, never taken investment. There's literally never been a dollar put into the business. All we've ever put in is, is our time and energy. And, you know, we're now a 50, $60 million business growing at, you know, between 30 and 50% a year. So it's, it's going great guns for us. So for our audience out there, what, 
like who are your customers like how do you generate income yeah so we're essentially a consultancy um so we work with top of the mid-market retailers in both b2c and b2b helping them drive what is their online digital strategy okay mm. so um we look at it through three lenses which is acquisition conversion and retention of consumer um we work very much on the digital commerce side of things, but more and more that's starting to lean into omnichannel, um, really understanding that entire consumer journey. Um, working with a lot of B2B brands going through really big transformations in, in that space. And we do everything from starting out with what is your big unifying strategy and then building the tactics off there, selecting the technologies to work with. Uh, building and designing that experience, understanding how you fit into the marketplace, uh, yeah. really respecting the ecosystem of your competitors that are out there and, under, and understanding what is your competitive advantage and differentiation in that space. Um, and we kind of slide in alongside our, our, our customers. So as opposed to trying to be their entire digital team and you know, the very old school way of doing this was you drop an RFP into agency land and then agency land comes back with 17 different prices and 25 different solutions for you. And then you try to pick the best one. Mm. We do it a very different way, which starts with a board level conversation down where we're genuinely driving strategic change and business outcomes for that and sidling up aside and even more now inside those businesses to build hybrid teams and really becoming an extension of those brands and you know our our premise is that we believe in the longevity of sustained business growth rather than you know these hype cycles of you know let's do crazy discounting and stock dumping and um you know trying to aggressively enter new markets without a clear strategy we work at a kind of a eight out of 10 speed to deliver consistent eight out of 10 results that give that constant step change to business growth through there. And we're fortunate that some of our founding clients are still clients today. So, um, you know, in the Kiwi market, that'd be people, I think our very first ever client was Barker's menswear, mm -hmm. um, all of the merchant shoe brands, so on and so forth. And now we're fortunate enough that we have people like Patagonia in our portfolio. Um, Global. Yep, uh, DKMY, um, Goodyear tires, um, lots of homewares. Um, yeah, there's, um, you know, I, th I think they have a client base of around about 300 merchants now that we work with. Um, and they generally, um, we tend not to play too much at the super high end of stuff. So we're not trying to, you know, be eBay's partner or Amazon's partner. Um, but we work with really great retailers where we can have genuine impact to their business and be a valued party there as opposed to just being an outsourced partner. So we're fortunate now that we can be selective in choosing those merchants that really value what we bring to the table, because if all, all you want is a group of developers to manage, I can show you a hundred ways to do that a lot cheaper than working with us. Hmm. What do you think, like the landscape's forever changing in terms of reaching your audience and the user mm -hmm. experience like from when overdose was originally let's say conceived to what it is now what, what's been the biggest change for you that you feel in in terms of how we market ourselves mm, yeah yeah um 
Not a tremendous amount. We've always believed of this little kind of catch cry phrase that we use internally, which is different is better than better. Okay, mm -hmm. so um, differentiation, playing in, in what we call negative spaces. Where, where is the market not getting the right attention that it needs and there is new opportunities, as well as having a real eye on the market as to where's the next wave of change coming through, right? And with digital, it tends to be in sort of like these well, it used to be five years, probably like three year cycles now um, of where you've had trends that have gone from um, open source to monolithic platforms to SaaS to now everyone's talking about these composable and headless platforms, right? And it's about picking those waves that are coming through because you can't saddle up and hitch a ride with every piece of technology out there, right? Um, and there's been bits that have come through where it's kind of like, geez, this NFT thing's going crazy. Do we jump on that? Do we jump on crypto? Do we jump on AI? And mm. you can't jump on everything, right? You've mm. got to pick, pick those pieces that come through. So the way that we have always marketed ourselves is looking at what our competition were doing in market and truly differentiating ourselves and moving to one side and being very early adopters into driving into some of those new spaces. Now, some of those are really, really subtle right? Um, and it's just kind of jumping the market by two or three months. Like if you looked at our LinkedIn following, we've got like 20, 23,000, something around about there. I look at my other kind of localized competitors in market, they will have one tenth of that following that's on there, right? Um, mm. Even if you looked at little things on LinkedIn, like their little newsletter app that came up, mm. right? yeah. um, we literally saw that and deployed on day one. Okay. So mm. as soon as, as, as soon as it came up, we were literally the first to market on that. And being that first to market advantage was incredible. Like we now have seven and a half thousand people that picked up on what's this new thing, right? So just being aware and open to new opportunities. The other thing that, I, that I've always found difficult in our market is there is always opportunities to buy an audience, right? So you can go to every trade show and fair under the sun, right? And some of these are getting hairy, scary expensive, you know, and it, it, it's not hard to go and drop 20, 30, 40, 50 grand in there, right? And it's mm -hmm. what all of our competitors were doing. And we looked at it and your default reaction is, well, there's the crowd. I guess that's where the business must be. I guess that's the rules of engagement. And that's how you're supposed to play the game. We chose a, a completely different tack. And I'm, you know, I'm proud to say that over, you know, the seven years that we've been trading, we've never paid for a trade show. Okay, we've just never done it. Um, um, and we've managed to outgrow that market and pretty much done in, you know, five or six years, which takes most people sort of 20 years. And the way we do that is pl playing around the edges and understanding where does that audience sit? How do we build intimate opportunities with our merchants? How do we build reputation and revenants? Um, just even some of the stylings of how we communicate our brand, you know, being called overdose is pretty jarring, right? And it's deliberately so. It, it, it's deliberately, how do I garner some attention, right? How do I mm. build a genuine attitude around our brand rather than being an also ran? And my philosophy to on, on entrepreneurialism is you've got to choose whether you're going to be a player in, in, in the game or whether you're going to start defining your own game. And we chose very subtly to just differentiate ourselves. And there's no one major thing. It's a combination of 20 to 30 small things of, you know, attitude, the way that we price things, the way that we communicate, um, the style of content we push out, uh, how, how we talk in, in public, how we dress, right? It's all of those little tiny nuance 
and there is no one big thing that differentiates yourself. But it's whenever I see an opportunity for differentiation that excites me, right? Mm. So mm. there's no big crazy cold calling list or anything like, like <laughs> that. Um, there's no running up to every trade show. And more than anything, it is a combination of reputations and relationships and building those relationships where people recommend you. And aggressively in our world, it's a partner ecosystem. And we invest very heavily in making sure that we've got aligned partners and we're always doing cool things with those guys rather than just playing into the expected narrative of what everybody else is doing. Mm. What was your original plan with Overdose? And then what what has been the iterations? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the original plan. So we sat down and said, wouldn't it be cool if we could have an environment that we wanted to work in that allowed us to be who we want wanted to be and make a salary that was better than market rate, right? So mm -hmm. it was a let's build a high-impact 10 to 12-man agency. Um, we actually didn't want to at first to do any execution. Right. What we wanted to do was be that strategic lens that was coming in that was super valuable, super high impact. What happened to us was after, um, you know, 18 months, two years of where we'd been rolling purely in, in that environment and kind of leading other people's teams. Everyone started asking us, can you just execute this for us, Todd? Can you just do this? Can you spin me up a team? Um, and yeah, it, it, it kind of took on a life of its life of its own and, for all those other founders that have been through those periods of acceleration of where you've suddenly gone from, you know, 10 staff to, oh shit, there's 50. That was genuinely a, have I still got my hands on the reins of this? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it starts to become a brand and a force beyond who we were. And we just let it happen to be quite frank. And said, well, this is all positive. These are all merchants that we want to work with. Um, and then you go past those struggles of, oh, my God, nobody wants to work for us because we're a little startup, to now it fills me with so much pride when you see people talking so proudly about the brand that they've worked for. Um, even guys that have done, you know, three or four years with us and, you know, they've capped out what they can achieve here and they move on to the next role, they leave these glowing reviews about, you know, I will always remember that Overdose were the launch pad that put me five years ahead in my career. And now we've become a, you know, a destination employer within our little niche of an, an ecosystem. But yeah, the, the original intention was something um, uh, quite small and very pointy. And we then sat down as a group after about 18 months to two years and really reset those expectations. And we had, the, we had that collective four of us over a beer, shit or bust conversation um, and that's when it went from something that was pointed to saying right let's build a hundred million dollar business right let's build something that is a multi-generational business here we have now done our market research through our time in market we see the opportunity it was to us it was brazenly clear how big the opportunity was but nobody else could quite see it right and even when we went and told people we were going to do it so nah never work it's a closed market you need this you need that you, you need the support of big networks like we don't we just don't need any of that and operating with your back against the wall in a really low cash flow environment um, and deciding to move from a profitable business into a pure growth machine that was the real big kicker has there been a time in the the lifespan of overdose where there's there's been things that have kept you up at night 
challenges that you didn't know whether or not you're actually going to be able to overcome and then trying to sort of work work it out in advance working out in advance no sleepless nights absolutely yes and if you're not having sleepless nights as a founder entrepreneur you're probably not doing it right to be quite frank um the the biggest mental struggle that i went through craig was the sudden realization that this stopped being a wouldn't it be cool if and that you were responsible for hundreds if not thousands of lives when you look at the partners and the children that are dependent on the income that they make from from your business that was most acutely um came to home where we we had around about 200 staff in the ukraine when the war broke out um so that was a moment where you sit there as the money is irrelevant you are the leader of these people and that's just not me that's a a, a collective we of that senior leadership team we are responsible for these people and they are our people and we have always been a pe people first organization it's very hard to be a people first organization all the time because you, you know as a as a business you have to make some hard decisions you, you know the rocket ship isn't always going directly upwards and there's challenges that come that, that come along there where you have bad quarters and you have to do some 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 restructures but when that hit with with the ukraine um we literally put every single penny that we had and we just wired it straight to them right um we almost tanked the entire company to support our people um and that was how do you get 150 to 200 people out of our people who are in kiev turnipil and kharkiv how do we get them safe how do we get them to the west how do we get them into germany um, so we were booking buses, booking out hotels. Um, we had a team in Germany at that time. So uh, how do we accept and receive these people in, into the country? And, and there's a perception there that, um, you know, these, these Eastern European countries are low economic, low lifestyle locations. It's completely incorrect, right? These are people that have fantastic careers, um, they have built their career, they have bought their homes, they have had babies, they have livelihoods, they have everything and have worked for 15, 20 years to get to that position. And they are completely stripped of that and left with a suitcase and a laptop, right? So that is a real kick in the nuts, keeping you up at night. And I was waiting every night for the phone call of where we had lost staff, right? Now, touch wood, we have not lost any staff through this process. Um, we recently had a member of staff who's, you know, it was actually on the news and it was his bedroom that was hit by a rocket. Um, but fortunately, he'd followed protocol and he was outside. I've had my managing directors of those teams in the Ukraine turn up to, you know, their weekly conference calls and there is literally a Kalashnikov in the background, right? And that is a holy fuck reality check. What are we doing with this business, right? Um, so the people over there are incredible, right? Now we had to go through a lot of process to get these people reoperating, but their resilience to be able to deliver, and to be honest, their performance went up when the war happened because they felt it was almost their national duty to be delivering during that period, right? And you sit there as an entrepreneur and you are literally powerless. 
you are 100% powerless because I can't stop the bombs coming down. I can't make the bus drive any faster. Um, I can't change the rules at the um, at the border control. And I think I sat in the same seat for almost a week solid with BBC News running, right? Um, and just seeing and just waiting for it to get worse, waiting for it to get worse, right? Now, you get through that that process and it's a full reality check. Um, but yeah, if there was a moment there of where you feel that you are powerless and you have created something which has a meaning bigger than what you meant it to have, um, but you have fundamentally lost control, that was it. And we relied on the goodwill of people, some good luck, um, all the cash we could lay, lay, lay our hands onto. And you get it paid back in spades, right? So all of the other staff around the world started contributing, right? We suddenly had after a week, the staff had put 50 grand into a pool to send to the people, people giving up their wages, right? Um, and it galvanized us as a business so incredibly hard, right? Um, so yeah, that would be the biggest sort of, you know, if you look at it from an HR perspective um, and that stuff that you can't plan for, but what it does build is resilience in your leadership team and a better approach of understanding where are the vulnerabilities in your own business and how do you plan and structure ahead through that? How do you diversify your income streams and your resource pools and things like that? Um, at the same time as that happened, it actually caused us a lot of economic pain as well because FX rates went bonkers right through that period. You know, like the... Um, uh, the the kiwi dropped to around about 57 or 58 cents and you know we had been running our business on a 65 67 cents sort, sort of process mm. um and so literally our entire margin got wiped out through an fx transaction because we have a lot of staff that are paid in us dollars um mm. so now being in a position there um where you understand the things that are beyond your control and you had ignored them because it previously hadn't happened right so you were just I wouldn't say you were naive to it, but you certainly weren't looking at it because it wasn't a challenge that was there in front of you. And all that does is build layers and layers of resilience through the business um, where we are now fundamentally so well prepared for anything that comes our way through there um, and have process and structures in play. Because when you're in that startup mode, Craig, you, you're just charging, right? You're, you're, you're running as hard as you possibly can and you have a you know singular objective through there and all of those things that you were supposed to do through the maturation of your business we just didn't do it right so we we suddenly got to like three or four hundred staff and went should we have an hr team i think we should right um you know um maybe it's time we had some proper fiscal management in in this this business um and we ran the risk of potentially over trading in that environment, right? Where you're just hiring everyone with a pulse and you're signing all these incredible deals and, and, and opportunities. But as with everything, you know, you get the punch in the face eventually, right? So a lot of those processes um, and, and those events, they build that resilience um, and the battle scars and the bruises and the burns are part of it, right? Uh, that's where the, the strength comes from. And I firmly believe that you have to go through adversity to build that strength. And if you were too well prepared, you wouldn't have learned the lessons that came through with that. But what we do have in spades is a team and an ownership structure 
that fundamentally cares, right? And I, you can't buy care. Um, and that human first attitude, the, the caring nature and the willingness to operate incredibly quickly um, and see an opportunity. And this is both in a growth mindset and also a, cha a challenge in, in the business. We could have sat there and said, let's see what happens for a week. Putin might have only just thrown one rocket and it was all just a kind of a, you know, it was all just a game, right? But we, we saw it, we, we, we acted promptly and we got our people out first, right? Um, and that's all you can really do as a leadership team is respond to the variables that are thrown in, in front of you and get collectively better at coming up with the right answer more often. That's that's it. That's that's amazing. So, you know, like what's the most important thing in the world? You know, like the people, right? The people. people. We, we are fundamentally a, a people business. Um, we own no, well, we own a bit, but um, there's no real IP in our business. We don't have a product. Um, we build solutions on other people's technologies. What we sell is the the time, the attitude, and the experience of those of those bodies. So the people are our product. So if you're not looking after your people, you haven't really got much as of a business. What advice would you give someone out there who was is currently in a similar project or similar scenario that you were in when you first started Overdose that you wished that you knew that you know now, I should say, that you wish you knew back then? What, what, what would be something that you'd say to you or maybe something you'd say to your younger self when you're like, okay, Todd? This is what's going to happen. <laughs> you yeah. need to do this, or else this is going to happen. <laughs> so, I think one of the, as an entrepreneur, what I mentally struggle with, um, and this is a blessing and a curse, is I don't have a gauge and a barometer of of what is enough. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm. And I have a lot of envy when I speak to other entrepreneurs and they come onto our our pod, and you can see that they found what is enough. And they, and they have found that piece of like, no, do you know what? I don't want to go and open up in China and the US, right? Um, and so I've always been incredibly impatient and love the speed. So if I was telling myself anything, it would be just calm the fuck down, right? <laughs> Chill out. It'll all be okay, right? And I think that that's just natural entrepreneurial spirit is that when you have that environment that is high speed and high care, um, it leads to mental health struggles for a lot of people, um, and I am not averse to that. Um, it starts to breed anxiety, um, and this constant desire to win, right? And this unadulterated need to win, right? What comes through that is that you wear the failures much more than you celebrate the successes. Um, and that's something I've personally been working on for the past three or four years of where you'll lose one pitch, and you will have all these massive debriefs and bring the whole team together. And what have we done wrong? The world's collapsing, all of this. And then you forget that you closed eight other deals and it just wasn't meant to be that environment. Um, so I would, I would uh, stress to myself that it is a try to understand what contentment really looks like. And I still haven't found that for myself. Um, and that's a good thing-ish, depending on what part of a relationship you're in with me um certainly for those that are in in the business you know that intolerance of mediocrity and that desire to just push and push and push 
that does burn some people out sometimes. But for a lot of the people that have been on that journey with us for five, six, seven years, they love it because it's elevated their their career and shown them opportunities and being part of a environment that's changing the world. But I certainly think that I need to um, spend a lot more time pausing, stepping back and reflecting on on those successes rather than wearing the occasional L's that um, you just have to wear in any business, right? You have to have that level of resilience to work through there. And when where we went on such a tear of growth that, you know, there was a period where in our pipeline, we were closing at like over 85%, right? So wow. it, 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 it was, we couldn't stop growing at that one point. And then suddenly market dynamics change, things go beyond your, your control and you drop back to a 50 and you start feeling like a failure again through, through that process. Um, so yeah, it's a, the resilience is the win off the back of that, but certainly the mental health struggles that it can, it can cause and um, founders and leaders have to be very careful that we have people that follow us without us realizing that they are following us. And the energy that we bring into a, a room, a conversation, a Slack channel, a LinkedIn message can perpetuate down many more layers than we intended it to because it was just a, I need a beer moment, right? Mm. Um, and so understanding to control that emotional energy and being able to bring your best self into all those environments and find strong separation between what is your social life and your raison d'etre and not necessarily allowing the business to become your only objective, right? And I would say there's certainly been moments in there of where I lost calibration of what was the right thing to be doing at the right time, be it through your children, your home life, your business, all those other pieces. Um, and you know you're doing it for the right reasons for the the future of your whanau and you know the amazing tamariki that, that we have. But it's also they have a shorter cycle of memories than than we do, right? So it's about finding that necessity of balance and the resilience that goes through it and maybe going, maybe just run it at fifth, not in sixth every time and revving the engine at every corner. Yeah. Mm. I suppose it's just value and currency and what currency is the most valuable for me. It's time and time with time, you know, there's time with, I've got young kids and you know, you never get their back. They'll be gone when they're 18 or whatever. <laughs> 100%. And I, I think as, as much of it as time, it's actually attention as well. Mm. And and it's finding those skills to actually put the phone down, take the iWatch off. You do not need to read those alerts at 7 o'clock. It's dinner time, right? Mm. And spending quality time, not just time. Mm. Be present, right? Be Absolutely. present. Mm. What's your definition of success? How do you well, define success? Well, I just told you I don't know, right? Um, I genuinely don't know. But if, 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 if I had to start to put some angles on it, look, the um, I have never been overtly financially motivated. I see that the finances is almost a barometer of success and it's almost a, a grading that goes in mm. there. Um, my desire is to build some build a business that is has genuine longevity. Um, so I've never had the passion to crank the crap out of something and then dump it on the stock market and run off to the hills, right? That's not me. Um, I'm probably a little bit too proud to do something like that where your personal reputation um, and 
ensuring that there is a success for other people. I'm definitely someone who parks my outcome as I should be the last one to get paid on the payroll, right? I should be the last one that gets paid in a shareholder event, right? So it, it, it's ensuring the, the success of those around us and the stability of the business um, and genuinely the sustained growth. Um, it's always nice to be recognized as someone that switched things up and changed things. And, you know, you win these high growth awards and these Deloitte awards and all that kind of stuff. It's nice. And don't get me wrong, but um, I think for me, I love the journey as much as trying to find where the destination is, because uh, I'm not 100% sure what that destination is, but it's the journey of constantly course correcting, right? Um, seeing new opportunities and having a, a leadership team around me that is willing to follow some of my whims, right? And some of them have been absolute slam dunks and some of them have been absolute write-offs, right? Um, and I guess as long as you uh, are, are delivering more slam dunks than you are write-offs, then um, you continue to have the support through there. And essentially, I think that there is too much conversation out there about there being an end game because I don't know about you, Craig, but I've still got another 40 years to go and I enjoy the work. Right, mm -hmm. I enjoy the doing. I enjoy the, the the creating. So we have to find success through the the process and the journey, rather than being focused on one number, because the numbers that we set ourselves, we've blown those numbers out out the park every year. You know, we beat our forecasts every year, and for me, the the winning is the constantly reaching, and more than that, I think it's actually having the opportunity to reach. Right? It's the opportunity to work in an environment where your voice is valued and your attitude is accepted and it's a inclusive, strong, supporting, loving, entrepreneurial space. And that was really the goal. If we go back to that first question, what did you want to start? It was, I want to do a job where I get to work in an environment I really love working in right? and mm -hmm. we can have impact. And so maybe this is already success, right? Maybe that this is the success and we're living the success rather than trying to reach for it. I, I like to say, it did. It also, I, like, I said it the other day um, to, um, on um, Friday, I said day, myself and my son, we drove down to the beach, which is 40 minutes for me. And I was like, uh, we'll serve Carsten for some fish. We caught a couple of snapper too. Malakai, six, He's got, he got a big one anyway. I was like, these are the days, Malachi. These are the days right now. This is the day. You know, live it. We're, these are the days. This is success for us. Like, look mm -hmm. where we are. It's, it's just amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but there's other, this, you know, business, business is business as well. But success for me, is, I suppose, is defined some slightly different to you. But, um, yeah, was, yeah <laughs> it did <get> deep. <laughs> it's awesome. It's a good conversation. I love it. This has been really fun. Um, so for an agency out there right now who may not be getting the level of clients that you were at um, in your high growth stage, what would be a simple tactic that you'd say to them right now? Someone out there listening in the agency world to say, hey, man, you need to, or hey, person, you need to be doing or rethink or relook at yourself so that you're, you're going to get more inbox opportunities, let's say. 
Yeah, so I actually um, coach a couple of uh, small agency founders. Um, some of them are growing pretty well now. Um, you know, so this is something that we'll talk about on at, at SME as well, where I every year I will take on a new founder and I will mentor them through that, whether they're in a agency landscape or running a, a digital product. Um, and I do that pro bono. And I see common mistakes that happen through there. Mm-hmm. Um, the first, the first mistake that a lot of service businesses, and I think this is true for every service business, is you get more of what you already are. Okay. Now everyone approaches service business with this. We'll start small, and then we'll work up, and they'll do this, and then suddenly Nike. Do you know what I mean? And it's like <laughs> it never fucking happens, right? <laughs> you oh, have yeah. to. You know, and, and, and for me, that's even if you're an office cleaner, right? If you want to be cleaning the best offices in Wellington, almost fell off my seat there. If you want to be cleaning, you know, the big corporate office contracts and you're currently doing grungy apartments, you're never going to win the contract for the big one, right? Because you get busy, you get busy being small, right? Mm. And I see this nearly every small business is they are busy staying small and they get stuck in the grind. And they are not looking upwards and outwards about how do I actually achieve these layers of growth. There's this expectation that it will magically land in in their lap. One of probably the best decision we ever made when we first started Overdose was we decided not to take on any client that we didn't have a affinity for or that was not a client that we aspired to work with. Right Now, what that meant was that we had a pretty lean first three to six months, but it worked. Right. We set a stall out there and we went to me and said, we're not the right people for you. We're we're here. You're currently here. Call us when it works. Right. And so we set out with knowing the space that we wanted to work within. And we still exist in that space. It's top of the mid market. You know, so it's working with great retailers. And so my recommendation is don't expect that you can start small and hustle and then work your way through this range of accounts and suddenly be competitive because your portfolio says I'm small and niche, right? That being said, we actually ran for our first, it was almost three years of existence. We ran a web page um, as our company page that was a single page. It had no portfolio on there. Um, it had no partnerships on there, had nothing. All it had on there was attitude, right? It had pure attitude. Ryan and I sat down um, and we were trying to work out what do we do again? Was this business supposed to be? And we couldn't really work out what we did and how we did it. And so we still have on our homepage now, the very first thing on there is 20 things that we don't do because, and that came from a two guys stuck in a room because we couldn't work out what we did, but we could communicate what we didn't. And a lot of that's where the contrarian attitude comes from, right? Of that negative spaces. And it was talking, um, it was talking about attitude. It was doing something nobody had ever done in this space. Everyone else starts with service, 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 client, 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 right? And we decided to speak through attitude and values in, in that space. So I'd say the first things for um, anyone in a service-based industry is focus on what is the market you want to work within and attack that market. Don't assume that you can build, build yourself up to it. If you are working with a, a smaller niche market, be very, very careful that you're busy staying small and busy being small and bringing on lots of this smallness that doesn't actually allow you to level up through the game. And that's when you have to make some really hard decisions as a founder where you start turning away business because that's not what my vision for the organization is. And as a service business, 
you become vicariously the body of your clients, right? So the first thing any agency, any merchant coming into an agency is coming to you is they want to see what other work you've done. Who have you worked for? And if, if you're just working for, you know, Bob's Plumbers in Epsom and you're trying to pitch to Patagonia, <laughs> it doesn't fit. It doesn't mm. stick, right? So you have to find that, cap- um, that's, that set of balances. The other thing which every small business owner, especially in digital, gets wrong is they assume that the market wants to hear from you that you can do everything. I can't tell you how many of these websites I see that say, we do Facebook ads, we do SEO, we do e-commerce, we do CMS, we run 17 different platforms. We literally do everything. And then you look at their their team size on LinkedIn and it's a team of eight guys. And it's like, well, what you mean is you did a half-assed job once four years ago on that platform and you're trying to kind of scrape any possible opportunity, right? Now, at Overdose, we acquire businesses as well. So we're always looking for guys that have, you know, um, are doing great things in uh, new areas of technology and are probably the, they're at the bleeding edge, first adopters of new kind of concepts and kit. And then we kind of bring, bring them into our world when we see that there's that big uh, second wave of adoption coming. And we're looking for one thing, which is, do you do one thing incredibly well, right? And so the last company that we brought in was a company called Noodle over in Australia. They were doing great things in this composable commerce space with a product called Commerce Tools. Dan had built a team of 12 guys. He did one fucking thing and he just, and he, and, and he crushed it and nailed it. Now, this is where every small digital agency is making the same mistake is they're choosing to be a player in the existing game. There is no value in starting another social media, AdWords, TikTok, whatever agency that does this. You need to find something special, right? Our special thing was that we found, you know, you know the, the launch of, of commerce, right? And where, where that was going and we rode that wave. So you need to find those areas in market, not just that you're good at, but that have a single defined definition that you can accelerate through. Because otherwise, you are just competing with people that have been doing it for longer, have a larger portfolio of clients than than you do, and you are fighting an uphill battle with very, very little differentiation, apart from saying, we convert at 75% and we get 18 times, times ROAS. That's not what sells. You have to be differentiated. So finding that differentiation, that's the key. It's not a rinse and repeat attitude. Um, and we sit all the time. There's little commerce agencies that pop up around us all, all the time. And I will go and help them because generally they're playing in a different market to where to where we are. But the that opportunity for amplified growth, there's still some there where you can kind of pick up 20, 30% growth a year from a from a small team, but the lion's share is already gone, right? Mm. So this isn't a please don't compete with Todd argument. This is a if you want to be successful find something which is genuinely pointed, right? So that would be now, you you should be looking at the AI space, right? Mm. And one of the advantages that a new startup has over my business, we're pretty nimble and agile for a 400-man team, but I can never be as, as agile as a three-man crew that have just come out of university and are willing to live off ramen and are insane coders and can knock out MVPs and and, and products at at, at speed. And that's what scares people like me as larger agency owners is 
those guys that are doing something uniquely different. What doesn't scare us is people that are trying to do the same thing as us, because we already feel that we've got that kind of competitive advantage through that space. So differentiation and really understanding your market and that key to differentiation is find one thing, one thing. And Overdose started doing one thing. We sold strategy. We sold digital commerce strategy. And then we grew out from there. When, when we nailed one niche, we went sideways. Don't build a thin, skinny business. You need a tall, pointy business. And that's how you have success in a digital lens now. I listened to a podcast. I actually watched it. I haven't watched a podcast, very many of them. And it was a podcast with Alex Omozi, and he was podcasting Flex. He was a 12-time Mr. Olympia. And Mr. The, Mr. Flex was asked, Alex, Alex, what do you think I should do? I've got all of these business opportunities, and I'm just not sure which one to do. And he said, well, Flex, um, you were the world body um, bodybuilding champ for 12 years in a row, right? And uh, yep. He said, could you have been the CrossFit champ, the powerlifting champ, the aerobics champ, and also a surfer? And he said, oh, hell no. I had to focus completely on um, bodybuilding. And I was like, he's like, of course. So just focus on one thing and do it really well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then just be, and exactly what you just said. Yep. <laughs> exactly what you just said. Just be good at one thing. Just be good at one thing. There's um, And, and that, that's one of, you know, we're, we're both parents and, we still have an education system that rewards our children for being superstars at everything, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you need to get straight A's. You need all this. You need all this. And I've got one of my daughters now who's freaking out that she's struggling with one of her A-levels. And it's like, it doesn't matter, right? It genuinely doesn't matter because those other three, you are crushing it, right? Mm -hmm. so let's focus on those skills, right? And I think that that's part of the balance of entrepreneurialism of where we need to push that message more to market, which is your, your strengths are what you should be amplifying and not trying to patch up your weaknesses. And that was probably the biggest entrepreneurial journey that I went through, which is when you know, I handed over the CEO role of, of the business around about a year, eight, 18 months ago to Paul, because I suddenly realized that I'm not a very good CEO, right? I'm not the best person in a room with 400 staff and keeping them all up to date and building HR policies and building financial models. What I'm really good at is going out and inspiring merchants and growing the business and having a strategic lens on what our new opportunities are ahead of us. And that moment of realization of stop trying to fudge your weaknesses and actually double down, triple down on, on your strengths. That's the gold, bro. That's the gold. Very last question because I'm conscious of time. All good, man. You're speaking at Smitty Growth. Can you give us a bit of a pitch on what you're going, what our listeners are going to learn? Yeah, we're going to do a really fun session called the Founders Mindset. Now, this mm -hmm. is a um, a deck that I update every year, and I originally did it for my staff. So we 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 presented this internally and talked through. How does Todd's brain work? What are these things and why is he making these, these decisions and what are those plays? And as I learn and evolve every year, um, I drop some more things in there. So it's going to be a really fun session of lots of mini lessons that I've learned along the way and how I have reshaped my frame of reference for what being an entrepreneur means. 
Um, and hopefully there'll be some incredible learnings and a few laughs along the way um, that will help you on your journey as well. Awesome, Todd, this has been an awesome conversation. I'm looking forward to listening to you down in Wellington in July, but let's wrap it up on that. That's <laughs> it's super. Thank you so much. This has been really, really fun. I've, I've learned a lot. And the one thing I love about podcasting for myself as well is that when I have a question in my mind, <laughs> I can always ask people like yourself and get answers. And hopefully someone else out there, I'm sure there's more people than me with similar problems. Um, and yeah, and I know this one added a whole bunch of value. So, Todd, thank you so much for your time. Right. I, really, I really, really do appreciate it. Appreciate it, man. Awesome. You'd be cool. That's Thanks, man. I'll, I'll see you in Wellington. Will do. See you. Todd Welling is the co-founder of Overdose. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you're still listening now, it's so rad. It's right at the end of it. We do appreciate your time. If we could ask one little favor, it would be to give it a share, give it a like, give it a rating on whatever platform you're on. Otherwise, you have epic, epic day 